Hello, and welcome to Squaring the Circle. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jerry Hendricks, who is a retired Navy captain with 26 years of active duty service. During his career, Dr. Hendricks served in a variety of maritime patrol aviation squadrons, as well as supercarriers and light amphibious assault ships. His short duty assignments were as a strategist on the staffs of the Chief of Naval Operations, the Secretary of the Navy, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, and within the Office of Net Assessment. Following his retirement from the Navy, he worked as a senior fellow for the Center for New American Security. Dr. Hendricks completed undergraduate at Purdue and holds multiple graduate degrees, a Master of National Security Affairs from the Naval Postgraduate School, a Master in History from Harvard University, and a PhD in War Studies from King's College London. He's currently a fellow at the Sagamore Institute and President of Hendricks and Associates LLC. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program are on my own and my guests. They do not reflect the positions of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or any other organization. This contest for education and information purposes only. All right. Hey, Dr. Hendricks. Hey, thanks for being on the podcast. I, I really appreciate your time and I look forward to uh, some of the your thoughts and perspectives on various different different topics. And we're going to talk about the defense industrial base. We'll talk about the budget. We'll talk national security, uh, a little bit about China. Um, and we'll also talk a little bit about the about the U.S. Navy. And these are all things that uh, uh, my community force managers, you know, we have to have some familiarity with. We have to have, uh, you know, understanding on. Um, before I turn it over to you, sir, just a, a, a quick comment. Um, you know, I was introduced to your your phenomenal work, uh, I want to say back this spring or, or summertime, where I came across an Atlantic article, um, The Age of American Naval Dominance is Over. Um, absolutely fantastic article. I concur, you know, with, with your, your argument there. Um, and I will, uh, I will link that article to the notes uh, so for the listeners uh, can have quick access to. Um, but yeah, concur with your with your argument, sir. You know, the freedom of seas, you know, has been you know been guaranteed since 1945. Well, that's you know coming coming to an end as as we see even even now, right? With you know great power competition, um, and without a strong navy, um, you know, we have risk to globalization, uh, risk to our our S locks, and risk there is is a risk to our national security. It's also a risk to our our, our way of life. And we're seeing some of the those problems right now um, in the the BAM choke point, uh, the Gulf of Aden, um, the Red Sea, right, with Iranian proxies, and then even even a few years back, um, you know, with Somalian you know pirates. So um, just uh, you know, just want to comment on that, sir. Um, and then I'll turn it over to you for any opening comments. Well, thank you, and and I really appreciate the chance to come on and talk with you about these topics, especially talking about these topics in depth. Uh, you know, in, in my uh, professional military career, I began to write uh, when I was a lieutenant in the Navy, you know, really sort of began to hit my stride as lieutenant commander uh, and, and began really sort of by talking about the size of the fleet um, and, and how we needed more ships and, and why we needed more ships out and about. But then I began to realize the complexity of the issue required us to, one, stop preaching to the choir, stop talking just to ourselves and try to get out to a broader audience, hence the reason why I reach out in places like the Atlantic uh, to reach that audience, to make them aware. And the other thing is to get below just the surface layer about the size of the Army, the size of the Air Force, the number of wings or the size of the Navy in terms of battle force, but to actually get into a conversation about uh, the generating force, the defense industrial base, the supply lines, logistics. Um, so I appreciate the chance to be able to come on and talk with you and to reach your audience about some of these deeper issues that uh, I think that they're familiar with and perhaps fill in a couple blanks with them. So thanks for uh, asking me to come on with you this morning. 
Yes, sir. All right. Uh, good segue. Let's let's kick it off with the defense industrial base. So I know you've published a, a lot in this area and, uh, you know, I want to get your thoughts. So, you know, what is your assessment of our current defense industrial base? Like, what are your concerns um, if they're if they're bad? You know, how do we fix it? Well, I think the point about the defense industrial base is that it's anemic and it's anemic because we wanted it to be so. Uh, we had a very large, robust, redundant, resilient, in, in many ways, inefficient in, uh, in industrial base during the Cold War. Uh, that actually came out of uh, original Cold War policies uh, that uh, Dwight Eisenhower laid down uh, during his presidency, that he wanted to make sure that there were multiple suppliers for virtually every critical component within the defense industrial base, because in those early days, when we were just sort of getting our, our minds around uh, the implications of nuclear weapons and nuclear war, there was serious consideration of the fact that we might lose entire sectors of the country in some sort of a nuclear exchange, that there might be a limited exchange that would take out, for instance, the Pacific coast. And so if you're building all of your Atlas missiles on the Pacific coast, uh, you would lose that industrial base. And so Eisenhower actually required that the next ICBM, uh, which was the Titan, that it would be built uh, east of the Rockies. And you can go and look at ships, you can look at tanks, you can look at aircraft. We wanted to diversify that industrial base. And that's how we carried ourselves throughout the entire Cold War. But then after the end of the Soviet Union, when the Soviet flag came down on Christmas Day, 1991, uh, you know, we began the peace dividends, we began the BRACs, but also, uh, you know, DOD leadership, Secretary of Defense, Deputy Secretary of Defense, started to talk with industry and they said, hey, look, the, you know, the gravy days are over. Uh, you all have to become much more efficient. Um, you know, sort of the, the works of Deming uh, came in, you know, total quality management became total quality leadership. And we began to thin down our defense industrial base so that we went from 107 suppliers uh, in uh, major suppliers in, in the defense industrial base down to five major primes in just over a decade. And today, now that we're at the beginning of, you know, for lack of a better term, Cold War II, mm -hmm. uh, we, we have a, an industrial base that's just too thin and too inefficient. And so I, I think one of the major challenges of our day is how to reinflate that industrial base and in many ways, sort of arguing against logic, make it more inefficient and redundant uh, going forward, simply because of the threat and the challenge that's out there. Yeah, I, you were touching up on, I think, the Last Supper, um, some of the 1990 uh, decisions of consolidating um, some of those defense industrial uh, companies um, into into you know five, I think, maybe six um, prime, prime companies. Um, should we look at a reversal of, of that? Should we be expanding out our defense industrial base? Should we be having more more companies like, I guess, you know, break up, uh, you know, Boeing, Lockheed Martin and, and have multiple companies out there and suppliers? Um, so that way um, we have access to different different avenues of, of getting certain capabilities and, and, uh, and, and equipment. So I'm not sure that we want to force a breakup, you know, you know, obviously Boeing is a combination of uh, of like Martin Aircraft and Boeing. Uh, McDonnell Douglas was also bought out by Boeing. You know, Northrop became Northrop Grumman. Um, uh, you know, Huntington Ingalls 
uh, actually bought up a couple different shipyards, including Newport News. Uh, General Dynamics now owns Electric Boat um, and then NASCO in San Diego, as well as Bath Ironworks in Maine. I'm not sure that you want to step in and say that I want you to break up and fracture you as a means of getting back at a broader, more diverse industrial base. But what I do think is that in, in many ways, um, we have to take an industrial policy, which, by the way, is a phrase that's kind of an anathema uh, mm -hmm. to the right, uh, which which I, I'm a center right conservative. I, I you know, since I've retired, I you know, actually can say that I have political views. Um, but uh, but I'm saying I'm an Eisenhower conservative in the sense of, you know, I'm here because I want a plan on how this is going to work. So if we're going to take an industrial policy and we identify that we're about to enter a new age uh, of defense in much the same way that stealth and precision guided weapons altered the military when I was a junior officer in the late 80s and early 90s then I think that we're looking at things like unmanned and maneuvering hypersonics and quantum mm -hmm. computing and quantum communications are probably going to alter the nature of the way that we fight and operate going forward. As we do that, as we integrate these new systems, we need to take that as an opportunity to uh, hire new firms, uh, take small mom and pop operations, grow them to medium sized companies and then grow them to large companies. You know, it's important to understand that like Raytheon was not always Raytheon. Uh, Raytheon began as a small company uh, helping out Hanscom Air Force Base or at that time, uh, Hanscom Army Air Force Field. Uh, they were working with Lincoln Labs and MIT, and that company grew because of the new technology that was coming in. You can go same thing, Hewitt Packard, which is spun off Silicon Valley. That was a small company making oscilloscopes for the for Moffett Field for the Navy that grew over time. The military can make sort of targeted uh, investments in new growth companies. I think that that's the best way to actually grow uh, the defense industrial base again, is to look at the new defense industrial base. And, you know, and I always say that, you know, if, if we decide that we're gonna build a small or medium unmanned surface vessel for the Navy, going back to the same yards that we've been using to build our large surface combatants, perhaps is not the best opportunity or the best uh, you know, choice we should make. We should look at new yards and see if we can grow them, okay. thus adding to the base. Yeah, so a uh, question just uh, off of that, sir. So um, what are your thoughts on the Buy American provisions? Should we be strictly focusing on American-made, America-only, or is it okay to get you know commercial off-the-shelf, capabilities, get our supplies from our, our allies and partners overseas? Well, I mean, we've had the, uh, we've had the privilege of being able to pursue by American for the last 30, 40 years, uh, because, uh, we were so strong and so prominent in the world. Um, I generally, you know, in my gut am pro by American in the way that I approach things. I, I think that we ought to be building most of our uh, defense uh, components uh, in American factories built by American workers. And I say that because I can also remember when I was mid-grade officer in 2003, when this country made a decision to go into Iraq, and some of our closest allies uh, objected to that. Uh, I remember the French objected rather strenuously, and they pulled their support and they chastised uh, the United States publicly. 
we can go back and look at the wisdom of that now and maybe and say maybe we should have listened more to the French. But the point there is if you become dependent on a foreign manufacturer, uh, say a European country that might have a disagree with with you over a future foreign policy decision, or for that matter, if we decided to uh, allow Hyundai heavy industries in South Korea to build large surface combatants for the Navy because they can just churn out ships so much more efficiently and quickly than we can, understand that Hyundai uh, exists under the threat umbrella of most of the Chinese strategic rocket force. So you're, mm. you're putting yourself at risk there. Whereas if you make the investments, say, through a CHIPS Act, which is a topic that I've discussed before, that we take the same approach of the CHIPS Act, which you know we had senior leaders in the country, Senator Schumer and Senator Young of Indiana, that said, hey, look, this dependence on uh, overseas manufacturers of semiconductors is a national security risk for the United States. And so we need to reshore some of those capabilities here so that in an event of war, uh, no one could take that away from us and we won't be completely dependent on out, outside suppliers. So if we if we took a similar approach of the, the CHIPS Act to create a CHIPS Act to make a broad reinvestment in not only naval shipbuilding, but perhaps even more importantly, commercial shipbuilding, because commercial shipbuilding and naval shipbuilding are synergistic. We actually mm -hmm. see this in China because the Chinese Navy is a byproduct of China's commercial shipbuilding industry, where they have 19 major yards that are just churning out container ships and tankers and everything else. Um, and their Navy is, is sort of an, an afterthought. It's 5% of their overall uh, you know, uh, uh, shipbuilding uh, budget. You know, whereas here in the United States, naval shipbuilding is 92% of the overall shipbuilding in the country with commercial only, you know, being less than 10%. If we invert that, if we try to get balance back into that, we actually create not only industrial capacity, we'll expand our workforce, and we'll also have economic benefits that, uh, you know, we would actually have American products, which we're beginning to export again, like liquefied natural gas, actually being carried on American-built hulls and perhaps even crewed by American crews and the ship would be American flag. Those are things that I think that we ought to be pursuing uh, because there's uh, economic and tax benefits that go along with that. So CENTCOM has uh, several different task forces looking at, you know, changes in the character of war, looking at new technology, new, new capabilities and using the, the Middle East, the, the sandbox is kind of like a, you know, a testing ground. One of those task forces, you know, well-known task force 59 uh, for the, for the Navy, um, looking at unmanned systems, looking at, looking at drones as, you know, sensors, um, in, in the seas, you know, every year we see or, or hear, uh, you know, these slogans and they're in the, in a national defense authorization act, you know, you know, we want 500 ships, right? Is this a way using what task force 59 is doing a way to get there? to get that capability, get that capacity of, of ships in order to compete in our, and deter China? So um, I have mixed feelings about Task Force 59. I think the goal is, is good in the sense that Task Force 59 is there to innovate rapidly. Um, mm -hmm. The location and the structure, organizational structure of Task Force 59 is where I have a problem. I believe that unmanned and autonomous platforms, much as uh, 
precision strike and stealth redefined warfare uh, and the way that we operated in the 80s and 90s. I think unmanned vessels and autonomy uh, will will reshape the way that we fight. It'll give us a generational leap ahead capability over our peers if we do it right. You do not develop your generational leap ahead capability in the on, on in the front yard of one of your prime opponents, in this case, Iran. So if I'm really going to go to town with unmanned and really, uh, uh, you know, uh, stretch it out and see what I can get out of it, I'm not going to stretch it out and get see what I can get out of it right in front of the Iranians where they can pick it up. They actually can come out and pick up some of our platforms out of the water and take them back, capture them and reverse engineer. That's happened uh, during Task mm-hmm. Force 59 operations. By the way, the Chinese have done the same thing when we were testing some unmanned underwater platforms in the South China Sea. You know, who goes and tests? Uh, you know, your, your leap ahead capability uh, right in front of the enemy uh, that you're going to be challenging in a future war. You know, I think that we need to kind of take a, something similar to the Area 51 approach, where we develop the U-2 and then ultimately the SR-71 and then the F-117 away from prying eyes, a very uh, Lockheed Skunk Mercs kind of approach to things. And I think that if we're going to do unmanned, we ought to be going someplace secure uh, where we can have our own research development prototyping test range and then really see what we can get out of it. Create an unmanned community of interest that's outside of the bounds of the manned communities, which in many ways have sort of stepped in to restrict mission growth as well as budget growth of unmanned platforms. And let's, let's again, really stretch the muscle. Let's see what we can get out of it. So again, I, I appreciate the innovation idea behind Task Force 59, but I just think it's being done in the wrong place. Yeah, no, I, I agree with uh, your, your comments, sir. Um, I, I think another issue is that everyone is innovating. Everyone is trying to modernize. And I mean, like everyone as in several different organizations within the Department of Defense and even, uh, you know, tactical echelons, you know, from division on up or trying to innovate in, in some some way, right? Trying to build a, the new widget, trying to build a new system, a new process. Um, but it's it, 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 I don't I don't see the synchronization, the the integration between all these different efforts into. Um, so I think we're all over the all over the map here a little bit. Um, but I want to get your thoughts on on China. So, you know, we, we hear China, China, China all, all day. Is China really the boogeyman? Are they really a threat? Um, and, and are we behind in our military investments compared to compared to China? Or are we just using China as to justify a, a big budget, you know, a big military, you know, in our defense industrial base. You know, I, I, I hear, you know, I hear that side of the argument all the time. And I wanted to get your, your thoughts on it. Sir. So, um, so yes, actually China is more than a boogeyman. It is the pacing competitor uh, to the United States and the world. And let me step back and cast this in a larger picture for you. Um, we, as a country, we, the United States is a product of the Western enlightenment. We have certain core beliefs in individual liberty, self-determination, freedom, free trade, capitalism, etc. These are the operating system under which the globe currently runs. And we've seen just tremendous success, economic growth. It's exponential. Uh, more people lifted out of poverty since the end of World War II than at any other time in human history. Uh, global literacy rates have risen again exponentially over the last 70 years since 1945. Uh, The number of people living in extreme poverty, which is to say that people living on $2 a day 
uh, or less, uh, that number has dropped dramatically. So we can say that the modern era, which has occurred really under American leadership uh, and under sort of this global rules of governance that we've created, has, has been probably the, the most boon time of, of humanity uh, in recorded history. China fundamentally disagrees with our approach to the world. Uh, they do not believe in the idea of the free market or individual liberty um, or, or this idea of self-determination. They very much culturally believe in sort of central planning, centralized control, uh, sort of rule by uh, bureaucracy, which is not just communist, because we've always said that China is really communism with Chinese characteristics. It is a fundamentally cultural Chinese approach to thing that goes back 3,000 years where you can see it you know, in their, their court records and so on. This is how they think the world should be done. So the, for instance, and we'll, we'll just use free trade uh, and the, the notion of the free seas right now. They have a concern that free trade and the concept of the free sea, the idea that ships can just go anywhere uh, where, um, you know, where they can buy goods, where, where the goods are plentiful, transport them in bulk uh, to markets where the price, the best price can be purchased. China thinks that's a very inefficient and ineffective way. In fact, they'd like to see more of those goods come to the Chinese market where they feel that their lower labor costs and less regulation should give them an advantage. Uh, so they want to see more of that come there and they want to have the choice of directing that there. So they are very opposed to the concept of the free sea and free trade. They want to see a centrally controlled sea and centrally controlled trade. They make the argument that that's more efficient and effective way of doing things. And, and we can see that they really began to come out with this. They sort of had a hide and bide policy for a long period of time. Uh, but after 2008, with the global economic crisis that occurred then, China came out and effectively said, hey, look, we think that we survived 2008 better than everyone else in the world. And we did that because of the way that we manage things. So understand that China is opposed to the global system we have now. They would like to uh, supplant it with a system under their leadership. And it is their goal uh, by 2049 uh, to have that new system in place, that they would overtake us that they would become uh, essentially the global manager of a new global system. And that system would look fundamentally different than the one it is today. So if we understand that, if, if we see as Secretary of State Dean Acheson once said, if we see the, war, the world clearer than truth, if we see it starkly in black and white terms, which I think is very important right now, then we do recognize that yes, China is a threat uh, to not only the American way of, of life, but quite frankly, to the way that the world has been running very successfully for the last 70 years. Yeah, so hence, the, you know, the importance of having a strong U.S. Navy, because without our presence, without our allies and our partners presence as well, um, you know, the oceans just become the, the wild, wild west. Um, but on China, they have, you know, domestically, they have a lot of issues, you know, um, debt is ridiculously high. Uh, demographics is not in their not in their favor. Um do you see if if China decides that they want to take Taiwan? This is just you know you know what if? Um, is it is it the next few years or are they really waiting till you know twenty forty nine? No, no, yeah, yeah. So that's the issue there, and you you correctly identified. There's a number of trends that are going against the Chinese right now. Uh, first of all, their their capital debt is rising. Um, they've tied up a lot because China doesn't have things like social security, 
Uh, a lot of family-based wealth in China is tied up in real estate, and their real estate uh, bubble has burst. Uh, and they're they're knocking down new apartment buildings that they just built a few years ago because they there's just no one living in them. Um, and so uh, they're in sort of an economic, I won't say it's free fall, but they're in significant decline right now economically. Demographically, they're coming up on a real challenge because the one child policy that they pursued for over a generation, uh, there's a bill coming due on that because right now you have that one child that was born in the 70s, 80s and early 90s that is coming into a situation where that one child is increasingly going to have to provide the financial support for two parents and four grandparents. And so the Chinese system of social support, economic support, has become inverted. As, as we would say uh, in, in bad days of runaway inflation, you know, they're upside down and underwater in their mortgage payments right now. So mm -hmm. China is facing um, a, a, a moment in time. They have until about 2032 to achieve most of their foreign policy goals so far as how they're going to re-interact with the world. And then they're going to enter a really challenging period because of one child as well as other economic trends that are coming. So uh, one of my, one of my uh, learned colleagues once said that China has to become great before they get old. And demographically, <laughs> their numbers are going to shift considerably in the early 2030s. So their moment is now. Also, you look at Xi Jinping, who is, you know, essentially chairman for life in China uh, right now. Xi is, I believe, 71 years old. Um, you know, the, the world is sort of ruled by old men right now. Xi's uh, one of those old men. And, and Xi knows that he will not be remembered as being successful as, as party chairman, as, as a new emperor in Chinese history, if he does not recover Taiwan. This is a crisis of his own making because he has stated that that is something that he will achieve. And so having stated it so strongly, if he does not reincorporate Taiwan into uh, the Chinese mainland's governance, then he will be a failure. And so his moment is also now. So I have very strong concerns that the Davidson window that Admiral Phil Davidson spoke about uh, several mm -hmm. years ago in his final uh, you know, uh, valedictory speech as yep. the Indo-PACOM commander, that that yep. Davidson window is uh, is coming uh, due, and that we might see China move uh, in the near term. In fact, I'm I'm very concerned that China might make a move yet yet this year because we're coming up on a presidential election this year. China understands uh, who they're dealing with now. They cannot predict who they're going to be dealing with next year, and they view. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, who is the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party, although Nikki Haley is still in the race at this moment, um, that Trump is is a very unpredictable uh, you know, person for them to deal with. They had a very contentious relationship with him. Uh, China might just make the decision, we'd rather deal with the devil we know, uh, Joe Biden right now, make our move now, deal with him and his team, uh, rather than risk it uh, during a potential Trump administration. So we could see a combination of a number of different things come together that could trigger a crisis yet this year. So this is some scary times. Um, do we have a grand strategy? And I guess, you know, we should define what is a, a grand strategy. Do we have something that is like Cold War deterrence against China? Or is every administration just going to do their do their own thing? I would say that we're coming 
closer to a grand strategy. Um, understanding that containment, the, the grand strategy that guided us through the Cold War, did not come into sharp focus until midway through the Eisenhower administration. So we had, uh, we had the Truman administration, we had NSC 68, we had Eisenhower come in, we had the Solarium Project, and then suddenly around 1954 through 1955, containment in the long haul aspect of containment rather than sort of a sprint towards containment. That containment uh, came in and we, we hit that marathoner stride in the mid 50s and then it wrapped it up in 89 through 91 uh, under Reagan and Bush. So we are beginning to see a growing national consensus. You know, uh, the, Bush, the uh, Trump administration came out with the national security strategy in December of 2017, uh, probably the, the most rapid that a new national security strategy had been brought together by a new administration that identified China uh, and Russia as the two uh, peer competitors, the two major powers we were up against. What was interesting to me is that when the Biden administration came in, that was one area of mutual consensus. If you look at the bipartisan effectiveness of the Select Committee on China uh, that's chaired by Mike Gallagher, Representative Gallagher of Wisconsin, um, and, and he has a very uh, powerful uh, ranking member, and they work really well together. So I believe that we're seeing the, the emergence of a consensus grand strategy uh, that deals with uh, China. I wouldn't say that it's containment, although I would be in favor of stronger containment of China, but it is definitely trying to isolate and decouple from China as an economic power, as a means of sort of starving that, that particular economic machine, uh, taking away uh, both uh, its, uh, its uh, ingoing raw resources and then also beginning to sever ourselves from them because the Chinese don't have a middle class. Uh, no one wants to buy their shoes or their iPhones that they make uh, in their own country. They don't have a large enough population to buy that consumer good. They are dependent upon Western markets to buy those to the extent that we lessen uh, their input into our markets, we buy less of their supplies. That's what's causing their economic decline right now. I think in many ways that perhaps uh, they, they abandoned hide and bide a bit too early. They, they abandoned it at a moment when we still had an opportunity to back away from them and we have begun to back away from them. So transitioning to uh uh, forced posture. Do you think we're too overstretched in the in this world? Um, you know, we have crisis in in Europe with Ukraine. Uh, you know, we have crisis in the Middle East. You know, with with Israel, and then also in the Red Sea and in the Gulf of Aden with with the Houthis, and then you know Iranian influence. You know, throughout the Middle East, um, and then you know North Korea is you know flexing. You know, every every now and again with a with a new missile launch and, and new capability. Should we just be Asia first? Should we truly just pivot to Asia and just focus on on China, or is what we're doing good? You know, right as as is. Are we dividing and conquering? You know, my concern is you know we only have so much switch, right? We only have so much inventory, so much force pool. So I'm just wondering what are your, what are your thoughts are? Should we focus on on China, or should we have presence and and be a part of? supporting our, our allies and partners and, and whatever crisis it may be? That, that is the question of the hour, uh, with, without a doubt. And, and uh, I have a number of friends and colleagues, people I worked really closely with for a number of years who believe that you know, we have to 
be focused on China and Asia uh, to the exclusion of virtually everything else, that uh, we don't have enough resources, the defense budget isn't large enough uh, to be able to cover down on the world. And so we really need to focus on China as the priority. Uh, I could not disagree more. Uh, the fact is, is that we are a global superpower that has global interests around the world and that uh, it's not, uh, and we, we need more resources to do that. I think we have to make a more coherent and cogent uh, argument before the Congress uh, and the American people about why it is that 3.7% of GDP is simply not enough mm -hmm. uh, to be able to cover down on the defense. I also think that we need to be spending our money uh, within Department of Defense more wisely. Uh, prioritizing uh, new capabilities that, you know, uh, provide us with more bang for the buck in many ways. And again, I, I come back to unmanned autonomy and some of the new cutting edge uh, aspects of things. I also think that we have to move away from the sort of uh, uh, balanced approach to the services. Um, and we have to get the services focused on the mission areas and regions where they are most appropriate. So this is one of the areas where I often get into uh, conflict with my army brethren, because I think the army right now should be focused on Europe. It is the land theater and the army should be uh, aligning itself, its missions, its force structure, uh, and as well as its weapons uh, investments uh, to that theater. Uh, you know, we can foresee the potential of land conflict in Europe or perhaps in the Middle East again, although I, I would suggest that we try to back away and offload as much of the Middle East on other powers there as possible. Um, but um, it is the, the Pacific theater is really a Navy and air domain. Uh, mm -hmm. Space has domain interest everywhere. And I think that we have to shift emphasis. And that also allows us to shift prioritization within the budget. You know, I would I would state that in in again back at the beginning of the Cold War, uh, Eisenhower made the decision to go after a new look strategy. He was going to place a great deal of emphasis on nuclear weapons and strategic deterrence to try and hold down Soviet expansion throughout the world. Uh, and at one point in time during the Eisenhower administration, the Air Force budget was almost forty nine percent of DoD budget. Um, then balance came back into the budget during the 60s with Vietnam as the Army went into Vietnam. Uh, the Navy was always kind of consistently number two uh, throughout all this. I think that you need to make the big shift and say, you know, right now, I need the Navy to be everywhere. There are 18 maritime regions of the world where we have defined national interest. Uh, we need to take, in many ways, a tangential approach uh, to many of the global conflict using uh, the Navy and Marine Corps to kind of influence events ashore, but from the sea. And we need to withhold the army, uh, the boots on the ground aspect of our force uh, until I really need them to go in and break stuff um, and, and rearrange, you know, other people's houses at that point in time. Uh, but the army is sort of the, the asset of last resort because it's got the heaviest blow. But if I'm going to just be massaging the world right now, uh, you know, a little here, a little there, a little push, a little shove, then really that is a Navy and Marine Corps. And of course, air power and the Air Force right now has finally gotten off from its short range addiction uh, <laughs> to short range fighters and has begun to invest in long range bombers again, which is the Air Force's basic bread and butter DNA is the have that strategic deterrence, long range penetrating strike ability. 
and they need to, you know, they need to kind of move away from the short range fighter, which won't get to China from virtually anywhere that we can launch from and go with bombers that actually could be able to touch and influence the enemy. So, uh, you know, those are the things that I look at right now on posture. Yeah, you, you touched up on, you know, the, the defense budget a, a little bit, sir. So, you know, the defense budget is uh, approaching 900 billion. I mean, really, we won't even have an FY24 budget, right? We're going yep. on 140 days without without a budget. Um, but we have factions out there that are, uh, you know, they're saying, hey, it's it's way too much, you know, DOD, too much. You know, you're approaching uh, a, a trillion dollars. Um, we're operating off of a CR. Um, you know, from your experiences, you know, CRs are bad things, right? I'm just wondering from your experience, you know, how, how has a CR like impacted you, um, your time in service? Oh, I can, I can remember, uh, you know, first of all, CRs, you know, nothing new gets started under a CR. So -hmm. we're not building new submarines. Uh, We're not building new ships. Uh, We're not starting new contracts to look at issues around the world. Um, Under a continuing resolution, you can only continue to fund things that are already in existence. So you can't start anything new. And if you're an innovator or an advocate for innovation, obviously CRs are the bane of your existence because you're not allowed to fund anything new right now. You're also not uh, allowed to grow the budget. And under a CR, specifically when you're looking at a world where you got three to 5% inflation, then in fact, your DOD budget is getting smaller because inflation is eating your lunch um, Mm -hmm. around the world right now. So I I think that we, we have to move beyond CR. And I think it's the height of irresponsibility on the part of the Congress that we are not able to get these basic budget items uh, funded and out there. Uh, They are failing in their constitutional requirement to provide and maintain a Navy and to raise and support an army. It's right there. Article one, section eight, you know, go, go look it up. They're not doing their job. And so, you know, that, and I I think that they come in for a lot of criticism. We got to do that. So I, you know, I want to see budget growth. You know, I can remember as a historian, when the DOD budget broke through a hundred billion and oh, 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 that's just getting out of control. A hundred billion dollars in the DOD budget. Well, we're, we're nudging up against the one trillion dollar ceiling. We really, honestly, if we were uh, operating under Cold War uh, budgetary uh, guidance, we'd be at 4.5% of GDP. And that's about $1.7 trillion is what ought to be going into your budget. And the, that number only looks large because it says $1 trillion. If you look at the size of the U.S. economy, you know, uh, coming in, you know, $20 trillion a year right now in, in GDP, um, and you say that, hey, I ought to be at 4.5% of that, that's the historic norm for DOD spending, then yeah, you're going to be above $1 trillion. So let's get past that, get over it, fund DOD to the proper level. You know, uh, CBO just came out with a new uh, report on the budget and long-term budget trends. You know, the, the, the issue with our budget, whether you're looking at debt and deficit and spending, the issue with the budget is not discretionary spending. Uh, discretionary spending has been shrinking, shrinking, shrinking across time, across the 20, last 20 years. It's not income. Income has essentially been flat at about 17.5% of the GDP is income coming in. That's remained consistent. The problem that we're seeing right now is in uh, entitlement spending, that Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security have been rising, rising, rising. That's what's crowding out discretionary spending. That is what's pressurizing um, DOD spending. And by the way, now it's the 
the the service on the debt, its interest on the debt, since we're at $32.5 trillion, uh, the interest on that is what's killing us right now. We, we're going to have to get all these things under control. Yeah, and our and our adversaries are watching us, right? They're watching the turmoil in the in, in DC and not passing a budget. They're taking note of of this. I imagine this is part of Xi's, you know, calculus on whether to pull the trigger on, you know, an amphibious assault on Taiwan. You know, God God forbid. Um, you touched up on on this point too, and I wanted to get your thoughts, sir. Um, and, and where do you see the army contributing to the Pacific if conflict does occur? Um, in in Taiwan, where do you see the army playing a role? Is it in the littorals? Because you know the 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 previous chairman, you know, he said that you know the Pacific fight is going to be a is going to be a navy, it's going to be an air force, it's going to be a space fight. You know, the army is going to be a supporting effort, not that not the main effort. So I was just wondering, where do you see the army playing? Well, um, I see. Uh... So uh, again, I'm a critic of this. Uh, the The Army Futures Command, with the idea that they were going to lay down a bunch of teams and missiles and start moving around the archipelagic uh, islands of the Western Pacific, um, just runs counter uh, to how I think that that particular war ought to be fought. The problem is we look at, like, for instance, some of the large hypersonic missiles that the Army wants to bring to bear and the vehicles that the Army wants to then fly in and, and disgorge and begin moving around. If you look at what the highway requirements are to be able to run those vehicles, um, you know, we know where every highway is that can hold a vehicle or, or have a vehicle that that's large. We know where those highways are, and so do the Chinese. So the idea that we're going to uh, scoot and hide and find filing positions all over the Philippines or throughout the, uh, the archipelagic doesn't seem to make sense for anyone who can look at a map uh, and read a roadmap to kind of understand you know, where you can put those vehicles or what airfields you can fly those into. So uh, until the army gets smaller, um, lighter, uh, you know, to be able to, to scoot and shoot, um, that to me is the challenge there. I think the Marine Corps with its Marine Corps futures vision was more in line with the type of warfare that we're going to see in the Western Pacific. Um, and, uh, and so right now, I think the army is out of step. However, like I said, I think the army, you know, given what's happening with Ukraine right now uh, and all the voices that are calling for some sort of a negotiated settlement between Russia and Ukraine, which, by the way, only allows Putin to rearm and then uh, focus on his next goals, which is upsetting both Poland and, and the Baltics. I think mm -hmm. the army should return its focus to Europe. Yeah, that was a good, good points. Good points, sir. Um, so. Every service has, you know, an investment that that didn't pan out, right? Um, you know, the army we have FCS, we have Comanche, um, you know, the the FARA, right, has just, um, you know, just been been announced, right? We're pulling the plug on on that. I was just wondering your thoughts on the Navy on the littoral combat ship. So it, you know, it's a it's a capability that that is being utilized, um, but there's a lot of controversy, right? There's a lot of criticism, you know, maintenance uh, issues. I think weapon systems failures. Um, is this? Do you see this capability as the utility of the future, um, or is this you know just a a bad investment that just you know didn't pan out? It's a bad investment. Didn't pan out. Um, on, honestly, you know, for to keep the language of yours family friendly, uh, we won't really get into my <laughs> thoughts on on LCS. I think that you know, uh, you know, we have to find a way of making these ships work. 
uh, whether we just don't run them on their high speeds with their gas turbines because they their their transmissions can't handle you know the strains of that, um, or you know we look at different ways of maintenance or how I adapt them to haul things in sort of their large cavernous bays. When we look at the uh, LCS two class, uh, the Deuce, as a friend of mine calls it. Um, you know, we need to figure out how to make use of them. I certainly don't want to see them pushed out of the fleet as early as some of these ships have been because I actually need those numbers to cover down on some of our naval presence requirements around the world. Um, however, I, I don't think that anyone can objectively come back and say, hey, LCS was a success and here are the reasons why. Uh, that list would be extremely short as opposed to some of the challenges of LCS. I think one of the major issues with LCS was you know, who was involved with the design of these things and, you know, the degree to which non-shipbuilders were involved with shipbuilding design and sort of an addiction to innovation and wanting to go a bit too fast uh, with that particular thing. Specifically, the idea of going fast. You know, we used to joke that LCS was the Ricky Bobby, I want to go fast ship in the Navy. Um, and, and that doesn't make sense in an age of missiles. You know, uh, 50 plus knots of speed are not going to allow you to avoid a uh, hypersonic missile. Uh, you're, you're not outrunning bullets and missiles. That's just a bad way of looking at things. Uh, but the idea of having a small combatant that can operate in archipelagic shallow waters, that was a good idea. We just kind of put the wrong engine plan into it. Awesome. Yes, sir. So the Office of Net Assessment. So looking at your, your background, sir, uh, you've had some time, some experiences in the Office of Net Assessment. I know it's, you know, the, the Pentagon think tank, you know, looks like decades out. Um, you know, Andrew Marshall, I believe, was the was the first director. Um, I was just wondering, sir, if you could kind of talk us through, you know, some of your experiences in, in working in, in that think tank. Uh Probably the most rewarding tour of my career, with the exception of my command tour, being commanding officer, being king for a year and a year and a half, you know, working with great sailors was was really the high point of the career. Beginning to work in the Austin Net Assessment to think long term and to work directly under the leadership uh, of Andrew W. Marshall, um, truly a historic figure, um, was was a high privilege. Uh, you know, Mr. Marshall personally recruited me. He personally recruited every uh, military assistant that came to work for him across the span of his time in that office from 1973 until his retirement. Um, and, and so coming in with a guy who literally was an intellectual genius and, and, and learning from him to go into staff meetings with him and to be guided by him in looking outward, uh, how he looked at the world, the things that he read, the breadth and depth of his intellectual interests, uh, was just a phenomenal experience. And, and it was life altering for me. I, I can remember going to um, a think tank, uh, to a small conference at a think tank. And the, one of the guys in the think tank, and this was two weeks after I had joined the Office of Net Assessment. And uh, the guy at the think tank says, well, you know, we'd hire you tomorrow. And I said, guys, you know, I've only been here for two weeks. And, um, you know, I've only written one book. And they said, yeah, but you were hired by Andy Marshall. And so, you are now, you know, marketable. We, we would love to, you know, see what it is that Mr. Marshall saw in you. And he's been extremely good at spotting talent. So that's the type of um, imprimatur he had. And, and I was privileged to continue to be uh, a friend with him. And he was a mentor to me up until the day of his, of his passing. And, uh, and I continue to learn from him. So uh, I can't say enough about Andy Marshall. That's awesome. Hey, thanks. Thanks, sir, on that. Um, 
the the current climate of of the U.S. You know, there's there's war weariness. Um, there's uh, certain factions, right, that are pushing towards more protectionism, towards more isolationism. Is this a concern for you, sir, or is this just you know just just noise? And and you know the the U.S. will continue on, you know, defending the the new world order. So it's a huge concern. Uh, I'm really concerned um, that this sort of new wave of isolationism, which is something that comes and goes in the American culture over time, uh, that it's becoming stronger and specifically stronger amongst uh, serious voices that ought to know better. Um, so, you know, I'm, as I said uh, earlier, I'm an Eisenhower uh, Republican, but in, in many ways, you know, I come from a party that, you know, begins with Lincoln, goes through Theodore Roosevelt, Eisenhower, Reagan, all great serious foreign policy uh, leaders who understood America's place in the world. Uh, and so as I see, uh, you know, isolationist statements coming uh, from uh, leaders in the Congress um, on the right, uh, and by the way, on the left as well, mm -hmm. uh, the left yep. has a, a fringe that's out there. Um, and, and I'm very concerned because the world runs because of American leadership. It runs well, it runs safely, it runs efficiently. Uh, because of American leadership and the idea that we can withdraw back, you know, into the continent, uh, we have the oceans to protect us. That that's a very old thing. We are integrated in the world. The world is is plugged in with us. We need to be out and about. So um, I'm I'm very critical of uh, political leaders who choose to promote uh, isolationist tendencies. Going back to China, sir. What is the one thing that concerns you the most for the listeners? What is like the one thing that you want to highlight that is the most concerning that we should be, you know, we should be aware of or, you know, we should be focusing in on? Uh, I think the point that China is coming at this seriously, they have a strategy um, to, uh, you know, that they want to be the hegemon. They think that they deserve to be the hegemon. They think the world will be better if they become the hegemon. Uh, and understanding that that is a serious threat and taking that seriously, that's kind of what I'm after right now, is making sure that people uh, come to grips with the severity of what a China-led world would look like and what that would mean for our lives. All right, sir. Hey, uh, I want to transition to our conclusion um, and, and start with, uh, you know, my, my fun questions, right? And these are the questions I ask every guest regardless of, of, the, of the topic. Um, and so... First question is, you know, what is your all-time favorite book? The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. Absolutely love that that story. Uh, Multi-personalities all coming together at the beginning of the space age. Manned spaceflight, Project Mercury, uh, the way that he covers the engineers, the astronauts, the politicians all together in one book. Uh, I love that book. I've read it several times. I'll, I'll read it several more times. Awesome. We've talked a little bit about, you know, capabilities. We talked like AI and, and drones and, and hypersonics. But what is, you know, the emerging or future capability technology that's keeping you up at night? What worries you the most? Well, right now on the Chinese side and with the Russian side is hypersonics. Uh, maneuvering hypersonic uh, boost glide weapons uh, are being fielded by our enemies. Right now we have no defense. Uh, we've spent 30 years figuring out how to shoot down ballistic missiles. We don't know how to shoot down a hypersonic glide maneuvering weapon. Uh, we're talking about a weapon that comes in at Mach 5 plus mm -hmm. that will have near nuclear effects at, with a conventional warhead. 
um, and we have no way of shooting it down. So, uh, and we're not doing real well on our own hypersonic program. So we don't have a conventional deterrence there. So that's kind of where, what, what's worrying me right now. All right. And then, you know, final question, sir, is, you know, any, any advice, any words of wisdom for our, you know, our 03, 04, 05, you know, staff officers? Well, I mean, the, it, it's become almost trite and, and because we've repeated it so often, but let's, let's, let's understand that it's, it's like important, you know, uh, uh, everyone talks about, uh, you know, uh, logistics wins wars. <laughs> We need to be planning for structure laydown. We need to be planning logistics. We need to understand uh, where the system is going to break. And we need to be raising our voices about uh, shortages and shortfalls in that area. Uh, we did a war game one time uh, where we began the game at D plus 60, uh, two months into a campaign having used normal allocations of assets and war um, and what we found that we couldn't get beyond move two, we were, we were out of Schlitz at that point in time. The, uh, to understand uh, the, the, the shallowness of the depth of uh, reserve uh, ordinance right now, um, uh, other things like petroleum distribution mm -hmm. in the, in the Western Pacific, those things have to be heightened and you have to get political leaders minds around the shortfalls right now. We used to be resilient, redundant. We're not now. We're anemic, and we need to raise those issues to uh, uh, policymakers. Yeah, yes, sir. You know that's that's great. We we covered a lot of a uh, lot of subjects. You know, we've talked to defense industrial base. We've talked budget. We talked some national security. The you know the world order. We talked about China, and and um, you know we talked about the littoral combat ship. Uh, that being said, sir, you know I really appreciate. Uh, you know, your time coming on here. I, I learned a lot and I will turn it over to you for any final comments. Well, Matt, thank you for having me on. And again, thanks for asking such great questions, covering such a broad spread of issues. And most of all, thank you very much for allowing us to go deep. Uh, you know, I'm not a bumper sticker guy, and I don't think that most of today's problems can so be solved with bumper sticker link solutions. So I appreciate the chance to come in and go in depth with you on a number of these things. And I'd love to hear uh, from any of your listeners. If they have questions, they can reach out to me at my initials, H-J-H, at Hendrix, H-E-N-D-R-I-X, and A-N-D, associates.com. Just write me and I'll be happy to follow up with you. Yeah, yes, sir, Ian. I will, I'll put that email in the notes uh, when, I, when I publish this, and I'll also encourage uh, my listeners to follow you on Twitter because you post a lot of great, uh, a lot of great publications, a lot of great work out there, sir. Uh, that being said, hey, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes involving national security, the budget, strategy, the defense industrial base in China.